Good to see many of you here. I thought it'd be real light this week after last week, but I guess we, the Lord is doing his work. This is where we are, and we'll be here for a few weeks. Uh, our primary passage today will be Ephesians 4. But before we get there, I want to say a couple of things and just review briefly some things that were said last week so that we're all on the same page. And I want to talk about one of the challenges with a definition of bitterness is that so many words overlap. You know, we know that there's a lot of words in the English and even in the original language that we typically translate the Bible from the Greek. There's words that overlap. So you'll see a lot of words lined up together and they seem like they mean the same things. Like there's no one who wouldn't agree that bitterness has to do with anger, right? We would all agree with that. But in many ways, when you're bitter, you're angry at people. But to say that bitterness is anger would be, in and of itself, not necessarily accurate. In fact, in Ephesians 4, our passage today, Paul, in verse 26, he says this. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So if you just say bitterness is anger, then you have a problem because there's a command here to say, be angry and not sin. Well, you can't be bitter and not be sinning. So bitterness just can't be anger, even though anger is definitely a part of what it means to be bitter. So as you can see, it can be difficult sometimes to like nail down specifically how is bitterness different from like resentment? Are there differences? You know, resentment is typically defined as this, a feeling of indignant displeasure or persistent ill will at something regarded as wrong, insulting, or injurious. But the word resent, apart from the ESV translation, is not in most Bibles. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, what is translated as keeping a record of wrongs in the ESV is the word resentful. So when you're resentful, you're keeping a record of wrongs. But bitterness definitely keeps a record of wrongs. It can be a challenge to get down a good definition because the Bible doesn't always give us the play-by-play. Play. It doesn't always say, okay, here's bitterness. So Peter tells Simon, you are poisoned by bitterness, but he doesn't really say how. The Bible doesn't always walk you through, okay, here's what you thought, then you did this, then you did this, then you did this, then you did this. And so the job as the, as the preacher is to try to connect the dots so that you can understand where you and I may be tempted to bitterness. But the Bible doesn't always give us the specificity. So at times we have to go off of, okay, here's what the Bible's describing. Here's what I think it's saying. And then here's how I see it play out in my life and in the life of others. It's a challenge. Because this one word means a lot of things. Bitterness is a very dangerous word. It's a very dangerous heart issue. 
but it means a lot. There's anger, what we would call resentment, and other things wrapped up in it. Last week, we answered two questions. The first was, what is bitterness? And I said, if you look up bitterness, it'll be described as a noun because it's a thing. But I said bitterness is also an adjective, describes, and I said, more importantly, it's a verb. Because bitterness does something. So if bitterness is not just anger, then it is a certain type of anger. We can't just say it's anger because we can be angry and not sin. So it's a certain type of anger, which, Lord willing, we will hopefully make clear shortly. Last week, I gave a definition. Basically, what I do is here's what happens. When I, when I preach, I, I typically look up what the Greek word is. It translated bitterness. And then I look up in many different de- dictionaries that describe, I don't look at just one, I look at like eight or nine different dictionaries. What are all the different words used to describe it that you put together? Okay, here's the the theme. Here's the theme of how these these sort of Bible dictionaries are describing bitterness as animosity, anger, harshness, to have bitter resentment or hatred towards someone else. And then it'll say something like this. This term, bitterness, denotes a state of sharp, intense hate or resentment. It is an embittered and resentful spirit which refuses to be reconciled. So one thing I didn't say last week, intentionally that I intend to say this week, that bitterness, and particularly the root of bitterness, is a commitment to unforgiveness. It is a decision, and by commitment, I mean the decision not to forgive. Now, I'm not going to cover this this week, but a lot of what people think is bitterness is actually resentment. I think they're two different things. You see, bitterness doesn't want to resolve the issue. But you could be resentful at someone and still want to resolve it, but you're still hurt or offended by it. Bitterness is a commitment to unforgiveness and unwillingness to forgive. And here's why it's dangerous, because biblically speaking, the only person who is allowed not to forgive is God. If people don't believe in Jesus and confess their sins, then God is not obligated to forgive. Biblically speaking, he's the only person that is allowed to not forgive. Those who believe in him, we're never given that option. Bitterness is a sinful impersonation of the wrath of God. It takes vengeance in a way that only God is allowed to do. I said last week it's a self-assessment of what we think we deserve and a strong dislike for what we don't think we deserve. I said it's an unbiblical attitude or response that makes unmet expectations equivalent to sin. Let me explain what I mean by that. Expectations are valid. You, as a pastor here, 
there are people that you have expectations of me, whether you formally, whether they're in front of your mind or not. You expect me to be living in some way, shape, or form consistent with what I'm teaching. God forbid, but let's just say you find out I'm not. You're disappointed. You're hurt by that. That's an expectation you had that's not wrong. And your hurt is not wrong either. But if now you can't forgive me, or somehow I'm beyond relationship, or depending on what the situation is, it might not even directly affect you. So the expectation could be valid. If you're in a relationship, in any kind of relationship, romantic, friendship, sibling, parental, whatever, and the other person's a Christian, we all have expectations that we're going to act like what? Like Christians. And when we don't, we get hurt. Those are valid to issues. The expectations are not simply stuff that's not serious that you shouldn't have got offended at in the first place. But bitterness is never, never for the believer allowed. Now, one of the reasons why I call it an unmet expectation. I'm taking this from what James says in James chapter 4. Here's what James says, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and he's describing why you have conflict. This is, the, this is God's word, right? This is God. I didn't just, James is saying, here's why you have arguments with other people. Here's what he says. Here's what God wants us to know about why we have arguments with other people. Here's what he says. Beginning in verse 1, James, quoting from the CSB translation, he says this. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Okay, in other words, why are you beefing so much with people? He says, don't they, the wars and fights, don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Now, what is a passion? It's a desire. It's something I want, something I care about. It's an expectation that I have. He says, you have conflict with other people because your passions, your desires are at war within you. You want something. Listen, we said in verse 2. You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. So you see, the biblical perspective is, when we're in conflict with other people, it's not, you make me so angry, it's what I desire or expect that I'm not getting from you is producing the anger. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 15, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He said, look, what, what you eat doesn't make you unclean. He's talking to the Pharisees, why don't your disciples wash their hands? He's like, fam. That's Kurt translation. What you eat doesn't make you unclean. When you sin, what makes you unclean is what's already in your heart. So God allows circumstances to expose what's there. Circumstances don't put it there. They pull it out. So when I say unmet expectations, I mean we have desires that we want. We don't get them, and then we wage war. We're offended. We're angry. And again, the expectations can be valid. I expect to be treated a certain way, talked to a certain way, all of it. All of us do. We get offended. 
The Oxford English Dictionary, which I heard is the only true dictionary, <laughs> which is debatable. It says this about anger. It calls it, it says, anger, bitterness is this. Anger and disappointment at being treated unfairly. Resentment. We're going to come back to this definition because I think there's something wrong with it. But if you pull this up in the Oxford English Dictionary, it says, bitterness is anger and disappointment at being treated unfairly. Resentment. We'll come back to this because I think there's a fundamental flaw in this definition. So you pray for me. I'm applying for a part-time job at Oxford English Dictionary. I need to clean these folks up, help these folks out. All right, I said, what does bitterness do? We said four things. First, what does bitterness do? Pastor Mike's definition, best definition I've ever heard. It memorializes your pain. Memorializes your hurt. Memorializes it. And we gave four observations last week from the passage, from Ephesians, from Hebrews 12, 15, the ESV translation, which says this, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Four observations I gave last week from this verse. One, bitterness fails to obtain the grace of God. Two, it grows, so it springs up. It's ob- it becomes obvious. Three, I said it causes trouble. And four, it defiles many. That's what bitterness does. Today, we want to go a step further and ask the question, how? How does bitterness fail to obtain the grace of God? We established that it does that, but how does it do that? How does it spring up? How does it grow? How does it cause trouble? And how does bitterness defile many? Our primary passage this morning will be Ephesians 4, 26 through 32, with a glance at a few other passages to make the point. Ephesians 4, 26 through 32, reading from the CSB translation, then I quote, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is... He is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger, let all bitterness, anger and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. Now, I'm not going to typically walk through line by line like I normally would and explain the passage. Exposit it. We're just going to make a couple observations from this. Verse 32 is the key. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. So how does bitterness fail to obtain the grace of God? Well, the first is it does the opposite of verse 32. Bitterness does the opposite of that. How does it do that? In verse 27, it gives the devil an opportunity. It gives the devil an opportunity. There are rare occasions where the Bible will say the devil will have an opportunity here. 
There's only a few. One of them is 1 Corinthians 7. Between husbands and wives, when they're not intimate together, it says, look, your body doesn't belong to you. You need to, be, you need to be intimate together or else you will give the devil an opportunity. There's very few where God makes it clear, if you do this, you give the devil an opportunity. I'm going to come back later on and explain why that, how that all fits together from verse 27 up down. But you give the devil an opportunity because bitterness is an anger that does not end when the sun goes down. It's there at sunrise. It's there at high noon. Bitterness is around at dusk and dawn. Bitterness is an, is an attitudinal alpha and omega. It's just always around. Well, it can be. And it gives the devil an opportunity. Anger that lasts gives the devil an opportunity to affect the relationship of the person that you're angry with. Remember, bitterness is not just anger. It's a different anger. Because it's possible to be angry according to this. Now, I'll be honest. I don't think it's as possible as people think. I think people give themselves too much credit for having a righteous indignation. I think you might just be self-righteous and hiding it behind thinking you, well, we're just flipping over tables like Jesus. Jesus ain't a command us to flip over no tables. <laughs> Number one. And when he did, he was perfectly moral when he did it. Every interaction we see of Jesus is perfectly righteous. Not once did he sin. I can't flip over a table and not sin. <laughs> Maybe you can. And in that case, you need to take my place. <laughs> we give the devil an opportunity when we're angry. But bitterness does this. Listen to what it says in verse 31. Let, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And in its place, be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you. Well, here's what bitterness does. Bitterness does the opposite of what 31 commands. Bitterness removes all kindness, compassion, and forgiving one another. See, the command is to remove bitterness. Bitterness removes the spirit. It removes the attitudes of the spirit when you're bitter. Not that you can't do a nice thing for someone you're bitter at. But you know when you're bitter, think of the work it takes. Or you do something like this. All right, I mean, all right Lord, I'm, I'm, all right, Lord, I'm going I'm to go after this. I'm going I'm to I'm try to be kind today, and I'm going to try to encourage them. And then when they don't acknowledge it, here comes the bitterness right back. You see, bitterness makes it difficult to do things to glorify God because bitterness is so self-focused, you end up making it about yourself. See, I'm going to do this, and if they don't acknowledge it, then see, this is what I mean. This is why I don't do nothing for you. <laughs> bitterness removes kindness, compassionate to one another, and forgiving one another. And let me tell you why this is very, very serious. In the CSB translation, 
There are a hundred, one another is listed 125 times in 117 different verses. And just a CSB translation. One another, those two words together, combined, not like a sentence that says one and then another later, but the two words, one another, is listed 125 times in 117 verses, and love one another is listed 16 times of that. In fact, if you go through most of the list, you will find phrases like this, love one another, greet one another, bear with one another. That means tolerate. When you're bearing with someone, it's like, all right, being patient with this person, bearing with this person. It says forgiving one another, encourage one another, do not complain about one another. Do not criticize one another. Bitterness does the opposite. Bitterness does not love one another. Bitterness does not want to greet people. When you're bitter at someone and you see them come in, what do you typically do? Other way. In fact, when you're bitter at a person and you're going to an event and you know they're going to be there, you have to really sit down and think about, should I even go? I might even show if I'm going. I might even call a friend and be like, hey, fam, you need to convince me to go to this joint because such and such is going to be there. Thank you, bro. Bitterness doesn't want to greet people you're offended at? Bear with one another? Be patient with the person you're bitter at? When you're bitter, it, all of a sudden, every, almost everything about that person offends you. Look at them all laughing and stuff and acting all silly. <laughs> you know, y'all never been there? You never been so bitter that somebody was laughing? Like, I can't stand her laugh. Look at them being all silly and being crazy, acting all dumb. And they're just having a good time. It's a party. This isn't a funeral we like. You know, it's a party. We funning. It's a wedding, and you mad that they two-stepping. Bitter because you got two left feet. You don't bear with people when you're bitter at them. You don't forgive them because bitterness is a commitment not to do that. I'm not forgiving you. And I know people are already having questions. Aren't there times when you shouldn't be around people? Absolutely. But forgiveness is something totally different. There are times we make decisions to say, you know what, this isn't a helpful situation, or this isn't a helpful relationship. Not being around a person could be wisdom. It's not necessarily bitterness. But not forgiving a person, reminding yourself of what they've done, judging them in different situations, We'll get to that because I'm getting ahead. Bitterness doesn't want to encourage people. You're bitter at someone and all of a sudden they're up for worthy of honor. You ain't going to the mic. You probably mad. They're like, man, what? If they only knew. If they only knew what I knew, you wouldn't be saying all that. Listen, nobody gets encouraged because they're perfect. They get encouraged because they're worth it. No one's perfect. I'm not perfect. No one's perfect here. As a matter of fact, I hate when people say nobody's perfect because we know already. 
only Jesus was like, we get it, fam. Like, no one said, hey, you perfect. <laughs> but we're doing, we're encouraging each other. Why? Because we're commanded to. But when you're bitter, you find it difficult to do that. When you're bitter, you, do, you don't want to not complain. Or what you do is you change it from being a complaint. It starts with, hey, let me just, I, I, I mean, I did what, let me tell you. This is how clever bitterness is. Bitterness will, will work like this in me. I'm struggling with someone like, hey, man, I need help, bro. Can you pray for me? I'm really struggling. This situation happened. What happened? And then I start telling them, and in the process of telling them, I'm all in it. Yeah, and it was like this, and I was doing that. I come telling you, bro. And then let somebody be like, man, if I was you, I feel the same way. I said, the fire's lit. <laughs> That's it. I'm James and John calling down fire on the Samaritans. Let's get it. You with me. Let's go. Wonder twins, activate. <laughs> bitterness will complain, and bitterness most certainly will criticize. Let me tell you something. If you are a highly negative and critical person, you are probably bitter. You are probably bitter. And I'm saying probably to be, because I'm not the Lord, but I think you are a bitter person. If you mostly criticize and are negative, for what? How come you're not as critical and negative about yourself? Oh, man, y'all shouldn't have came today. Bitterness, listen, this, this phrase, failing to obtain the grace of God, right? So, so this is the ESV translation. It says, see to it that no one, this is Hebrews 12, 15 from last week. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Let me make sure you understand what that means, because I answered a little bit last Sunday, but I want to make sure you understand. It's not the moment that you're bitter at someone, God's like... Well, no grace for you. You failed to obtain the grace of God. That's not what it's talking about here. God is talking about a heart and attitude of bitterness. We're all going to struggle with things at times. Bitterness is both a, it's a process and an end result. So if you live a life of bitterness, committed to not forgiving people, always offended, critical, complaining, negative, all these things about people, especially the brothers, those are, the brothers and sisters, those who are believers, then the end result will be you do not obtain the grace of God. The forgiveness that you were given is not afforded you. Now, we're not going to turn to this passage, but let me just say this. You can look it up for yourself. Matthew 6, 13 and 14. Jesus said this, look, if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will God forgive you yours. Understand that, believer. God isn't saying once you're a Christian, you're good. He's saying, no, once you're a Christian, you're obligated to imitate what has been done to you. And if you fail to forgive others their sins against you, then God will not forgive you your sins against him. So this isn't me just coming up with clever phraseology. I'm taking as best as I can what God is saying and saying, listen, this is for real. When you fail to obtain the grace of God, if your life is consistent with not forgiving people and being angry and all those types of things, then at the end, you will not be forgiven by God. You will not stand in front of him and be able to say, well, I just, you know, I was just being honest. I just told it like it is. Telling it like it is often is just expressing bitterness. And I'm from that. I know that. I used to be real good at telling it like it is. And I was, I was proud of it. It felt great to do it. I felt like I was doing somebody a service until I realized that it was just me expressing the bitterness and anger that was in my heart towards people. 
All honesty isn't good honesty. But it's also a process. Because when you are bitter at a person, you, the process of you failing to obtain the grace of God slowly begins. And let me tell you what happens. When you're bitter at people, you no longer have grace for them. So you don't have patience for their issues. You don't have patience for their sinful habits. Grace and forgiveness and mercy, these things are all what motivate us to honor the Lord. When we think, you know what, God has forgiven us for our sins, that motivates us to keep going when we fail. There's a big difference. I have three boys. There's a big difference from me hugging them, encouraging them, rubbing their back, telling them, look, it's okay, you failed. This is why Jesus died on the cross. This is what we do. We keep moving. That's the big difference. And they'd be like, boy, why did you do that? Get out of my face. I don't even want to see you. Go in your room. That's a whole different. Now, by God's grace, I haven't done that. So keep that open. But the reality is that's a totally different way my son is going to feel. He's going to be encouraged. And as a matter of fact, my boys, they get emotionally affected when there's grace and love and patience. And they're more remorseful. Because I'm not angry, but when I'm angry, it just makes them angry or afraid of me. You fail to obtain the grace of God because you no longer have grace for other people. And everyone's going to sin. If you are a Christian, spoiler alert, you are going to be sinned against by other Christians. You're going to be sinned against by your leaders. You're going to be sinned against by your elders. You're going, it's, it's, we cannot escape that. If you can find a culture where no one sins against anyone else, then you're going to be the one to start it. <laughs> it's unavoidable. And there are people who get so offended when they're sinned at by another Christian, it's because you just don't. You're just not aware of your own sinfulness. We can't avoid it. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever, there's never a time, obviously we rebuke, we correct, we have to, you know, we do, the, I'm not saying that. But we're going to sin against one another. If you're looking for a church where that doesn't happen, then die and be with the Lord. <laughs> because that's the only place you're going to find that. It's the only place. This is what we do. This is, this is why the one another commands are in the Bible. Listen, forgive, love one another, because that's how we make it. God understands you're going to sin against each other. The warnings that are in the Bible are not there to scare us, but there to say, hey, listen, this is going to happen. You're going to be bitter, so go after that. Go after it, because you're going to be hurt. You got passions that are at war within you when you don't get them. Anyone in this room who has done premarital with me, anyone, the first session is always the same one. Anyone who's done premarital with me has heard this or any counseling in marriage. You don't know what you want until you don't get it. That's why it's hard to prepare for, like, conflict in a relationship, especially marriage. You have no idea what you want until you don't get it. You don't know right now that one, eight months from now you're going to come home from work 
You're going to want to spend a romantic evening with your wife. She's going to come home and be tired and just want to cuddle and watch TV on the couch. And those are two different competing desires. And then you get home with those expectations, and then bam. Well, I was looking forward to it. Well, I'm just tired. I just want to watch TV. Now there's a conflict. Just like that. You don't know what you want till you don't get it because those passions are at war within you. You fail to obtain the grace of God ultimately if you live a life of unforgiveness, but you fail to obtain it little by little, and you start lacking the ability to have grace and being able to forgive other people. That's how, how does bitterness fail to obtain the grace of God? How does bitterness spring up and grow? Back to Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. How does it spring up? Let's look at verse 31 of Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with malice. And be kind to one, and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you. So how does it cause trouble? Well, it's just not removed. It's not removed. It takes root. When bitterness takes root, you're just not removing it. And then it causes trouble. Let me tell you something about this passage and sort of the way that a lot of theologians think biblical authors write. This passage starts out really at verse 25, but I started at verse 26. But when you see a list of vices, like verse 31, bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander, and you see these vices, a lot of people, theologians, think that the biblical writers are giving you oftentimes sort of a, a chronology of the way these things develop. It's not always just a list of things, but sort of one begets the other and keeps going and going and going. So this passage is really about anger, right? Be angry and not sin. And then it goes into, as it explains why you shouldn't be angry, one, because you give the devil an opportunity. Then it talks about the thief not stealing and doing what is honest. It talks about no foul language coming from your mouth. It's dealing with these, these different modes of anger, except for probably the thief, even though he could have been angry while he was stealing. And then it gets to don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The wrong anger grieves the Holy Spirit. And then it gets to let all bitterness. Now, we know bitterness is a kind of anger. I said it's a verb and it's an adjective. So you says, let all bitterness, anger and wrath. Now, if they're right that when Paul wrote this, he's thinking of the effect of these things one after another, then you're bitter and your bitterness produces anger and wrath. And then what happens after that anger and wrath? Shouting and slander. And then malice, all malice, all evil intent. So you're bitter, there's anger and wrath, and wrath is an action. Wrath is, I'm doing something about this. Wrath leads to vengeance. And what does that look like here? Shouting and slander. So I'm yelling at you. We're not talking about preaching. This is a different language. Please don't say Curtis. He's bitter while he's preaching. I'm just passionate. This is what I'm supposed to do. It's my style. 
but they're shouting and then slander. I'm going to say stuff about you that's not even true. So not only am I going to be angry and take vengeance on you, my vengeance is going to look like shouting and talking about you to other people. And it's interesting that he uses the word slander because slander is information that's not true. Because you know what bitterness does? After a while, bitterness starts to add to the story. It starts to add to the offense. And there's a very specific reason why, and we'll get to that in a moment. This is how bitterness springs up. It's, it's not rooted. It's, it's rooted. It, it, it's, it's not removed. If you don't go after it, it will eventually become obvious. And if this passage is right, if they're right about sort of the the stage of revelation of the way that this anger works itself out, this particular anger, which we're calling bitterness now, then shouting and slander will be there. I think shouting is both verbal and nonverbal. I think, you know, you got a boss, and they just, they just don't treat you the way you think you should be treated. Jasmine, am I like that? <laughs> Shit, I'm not Mike's boss. Mike is my boss for real. They say something to you, and you ain't gonna say nothing back out loud. You need that job, but inside you like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, whatever. Shouting and slander. How does bitterness cause trouble? Like Mike's definition, it's just, it's memorialized. We memorialize our pain. We keep a record of wrongs. We study it. That's you memorialize, you study it. I've had people say they were bitter at me and they know exactly what time it was what I wore, what I said, what music was in the background, the dirt spot on my pants. They remember all these details, and I don't remember the situation at all. I may have some vague recollection that we had a conversation, but I don't remember that at all. They've studied this thing. You refuse to let it go. That's why it causes trouble, because it's just studied. You replay it over and over. And you know often the motive of why we replay those things over and over? Because we think about what we wish we had said. Yeah. You ever do that? You know what I should have said when they said that? And you start going through it. And now, now, and guess what you're doing as you're doing that? You're building up animosity and anger towards that person. And then you start waiting for the next time for a situation to come up so you can say what you should have said. And because you've built it up so much, it comes out like a tidal wave. And the person was like, I just said good morning. <laughs> Whoa. Where did all this come from? Because I'm studying the last time you offended me, and now you had just a little bit of too much twang in your voice. 
And I ain't going for it today. You ain't making me look weak. They say when you laugh, it's typically because you do it. I'm guilty. I'm not up here. I'm guilty. I'm not using any illustrations from any of you. These are all drawn from my life. I'm guilty. By God's grace, I'm not always guilty, and I don't think my life is characterized by being an unforgiving person at all. But I've done all of this. Every illustration I'm giving you, I've done. I'm not ashamed to say it. I failed in these ways. And if anything, just don't be like me sometimes. Bitterness grows up because it's not removed. We memorialize it. We study it. And the more I study it, the more I realize what I should have said. Because when we're offended, we feel hurt, and that hurt makes us feel weak. And bitterness has this unique thing about it where it makes you feel like strength is to hold on to the, the pain. Remember it and never let this happen again. As if my holding on to it will guarantee it won't happen again. Okay, spoiler alert for the believer. You are not in control of your suffering, God is. You are not in control of your pain, God is. And God uses your suffering to actually comfort others. This is 2 Corinthians 1, which, which Pastor Mike brought out. Your afflictions help other people. Ask anyone who's done any counseling with me marriage-wise. Most of what I say to them are examples of ways that I failed as a husband. So I'm using my afflictions, or rather my wife's afflictions, <laughs> to help people understand, hey, to encourage you, hey, you're not alone. You're not alone in this. This is tough. Here's where I failed. Let me tell you what I've learned from that. You ask anyone in here who's done any counseling with me, they'll tell you that half of that will be, here's where I failed. Here's where I got it wrong. We comfort others. But bitterness is, now I'm going I'm to defend myself. I'm not letting nobody hurt me. I'll never forget this. And I'll, I, can't, I cannot prove this is what my son was thinking. He was a baby. But this was, I loved it at the time. My oldest son, he had to go get this procedure done where he had had his adenoids were too big. And they had told us, if you don't get this removed, it's going to eventually suffocate him. So he was, he was a baby. He was 18 months or something, 16, 18 months. And so we took him to this hospital in uh, downtown Silver Spring. Um, and they did this thing where they stuck this thing up. No, he was crying and all. And, I, you, know, you know, I'm bitter at the doctor. Right. Hey, man, hey, doc, ain't you, ain't you doing, hey, hold, hold on, doc, hold on, doc, what you doing, you know? Yeah. It's like, hey, that's my son right there. So when it was all over, I used to do this thing with him where I'd make him laugh and do this thing. And... We were by the elevator, and I was holding him, and I looked at him, and I did this thing, and he smiled, but he had both his fence clips like this. <laughs> and I took that like he was like, ain't nobody touching me like that again. <laughs> it, it was too coincidental. He was just like this. like He was smiling because I was his dad, but he was like, man, nobody. Both of it. And I said, babe, look at this fence clip. I said, that's my boy. <laughs> that's my son right there. He's a gangster. That's my son. <laughs> but you know what? This is what we do. Ain't nobody hurting me again. Mm -hmm. You are not 
hurting me again, and I'm going to stop you. But God uses that hurt to shape you. Third, how does bitterness cause trouble? Bitterness is a root anger. It modifies other sinful attitudes. This is why I said bitterness is, is tough to nail down because bitterness is an adjective. Adjectives, in the English way, they modify a noun, okay? So you don't just say a door, you say a big door, a red door. A little, the, the, the adjective modifies a noun and explains what kind of door this is. Where bitterness modifies other sin issues. So in the, one of the, the uh, Greek English dictionary definitions, it said this about bitterness. It said, animosity, anger, harshness to have bitter resentment or hatred towards someone else. And now that's just a dictionary definition. Let me give you an example from the Bible. Here's what James says in James 3, verses 13 through 15. Watch what James says here. He says this, who among you is wise? He's talking about wisdom from above. Where does wisdom come from? What's wisdom from God? He said, who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But listen to this. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from, down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Look at what he says. He didn't say if you have envy. He said if you have bitter envy. So there's envy, but then there's bitter envy. Bitterness modifies envy. It modifies the other sin issue. So it's an anger and a commitment to unforgiveness, and you're envious. You're, so you're unwilling to forgive because someone else has something that you wanted. Bitterness, envy is just the New Testament way to say coveting in the Old Testament. When I want what someone else has, I want that too. That's what envy is, essentially. Envy is just, I want, it's just covetousness in the Old Testament. So you can be envy, or you can be bitter about the envy. You see, it modifies the noun. Bitterness causes trouble because it makes other sin issues even more sinful. Now, I've said that bitterness is a certain type of anger. I can't prove what I'm about to say. There's no verse that will say... A, what I'm about to say, but I think as I've looked at all of this and summarized this up, bitterness, I believe, is arrogance's anger. It's the anger that proceeds from an arrogant heart. Because we know it's not just anger. We can be angry and not sin. Bitterness is giving the devil an opportunity to use that anger. It's arrogance's anger. Because bitterness and the unforgiveness thinks that you are above being sinned against. How dare this person offend me? Oh, you've never sinned against anyone, though. You've never offended anyone, though. Bitterness is a self-focus, and it's a sin of arrogance because it stems from and first of all, who are you to not forgive when you've been forgiven? Yeah. Bitterness is arrogance's anger. 
And arrogance thinks it knows everything. It's better than everything. It knows. It knows. You ever heard the phrase, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but the opposite of faith is certainty? I heard someone say this once, and I was like, I don't know if I believe in that, because you just said, you little faith, why did you doubt? Seems like it's the opposite of doubt to me, faith to me. But then when you think about it, I was like, actually, that is kind of true. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Biblically speaking, doubt is not the absence of trust. Doubt is the transfer of it from in God to in me. It's not like, okay, you don't trust God, but then who are you trusting? My perception of God. I'm trusting what I think God should have done. I'm trusting myself that my evaluation of God is better than his evaluation of me. Doubt, there's no such, no one doubt, there's no such thing as I doubt. Is I lack confidence in this, and so now my confidence is in my ability to understand it and figure it out, and sometimes I'm worried because I can't. Doubt is a transfer of trust. Doubt is a confidence and certainty in myself instead of God. Bitterness is arrogance is anger because it's a confidence and the certainty. It's the anger that gives the devil an opportunity. It's the absence of trust in God to trust in self. And bitterness is a very, let me tell you why it's arrogant, because it's really certain. And one of, the, one of the ways that bitterness really causes trouble is that when you're bitter, you tend to judge people's motives for their actions. Oh, I know why he did, he did that because of this. Okay, he turned the other way because he saw me coming and didn't want to face me. Oh, he said that because oh, she did that. She made that face because I ain't do this. See, it's hard to judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. You judge the root that the fruit produces. But how do you know that's why? Have you ever sworn up and down like this is what I think and then you were just wrong? Plenty. There are times I was just wrong. I was just wrong. But when you're bitter, you're certain you're right. You are certain that this is why this person did this to you. It could have been an accident. I just didn't see you. Sorry. It could be anything. All of a sudden, I accidentally bumped and spilt soda on your shirt. Now you're like, see? It's like, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, no, it's okay, fine. Thank you. It's all right. I don't worry about it. And then you walk away and be like, yeah. It's because you, you don't care about how other people in the way because you're always, and all of a sudden, it's like, huh? <laughs> Fam, accidents happen. Accidents aren't sinful. Bitterness is certain of people's motives. And it's dangerous. 
Now, the Oxford English Dictionary earlier, I said it had this definition, anger and disappointment at being treated unfairly, resentment. And I said I want to come back to this definition because I think there's something wrong with it. And it's two words, treated unfairly. It assumes that the unfair treatment is legitimate. And that's a dangerous thing. Because if I read that and say, okay, it almost sounds like it justifies itself. Well, I was treated unfairly, so I'm bitter. But how were you treated unfairly, though? Where's the expectation that you had that you just didn't get? We were talking about this yesterday, right? Let's just say I say, all right, hey, man, you coming over next Saturday? We good. Yeah, I'm coming over. I'm excited. We're going to play some games. We got a movie or two we're going to watch. We're going to watch that, that Korean horror film, zombie film. <laughs> right, let's get it. I'm excited. Can't wait. Looking forward to it. Want to show him the new house, all that. He hits me Friday night, bro. I can't make it. Something came up. No, I'm legitimately disappointed. I was looking forward to it all week. But things happen. But I can get bitter at him now. He probably didn't want to come in the first place. As a matter of fact, he probably been all week like, he probably didn't want to hang with me because fill in the blank. I'm not saying it always happens, but when it does happen, how is that that person's issue? How is it on that person? It's just, I wasn't treated unfairly. Things happen. But then biblically speaking, how does being treated unfairly release us to be bitter? Does anyone in here think Jesus was treated fairly at all on the cross? In the process to going to the cross? Were the 39 lashes that Jesus got before he went with the crown of thorns and the spitting in his face and the punching him? Was, that, was he treated fairly? And we're disciples of him. So being treated unfairly is a part of the cross that we carry because none of us want to be treated unfairly. None of us do. And we may have different temptations in how we react to that. Some of us will just be quiet and withdraw and give you the cold shoulder. Some of us will have the burst of anger. Which one y'all think I am? Don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> don't, you say, don't you say that. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. <laughs> Treated unfairly is dangerous. And also, we treat people unfairly. It's just going to happen. Listen, let me, spoiler alert. Jesus doesn't remove the struggles and the suffering that we experience. That's not the purpose of Christianity. It's to train us in the midst of those struggles. And one reason is because he knows that when we die and spend eternity with him, that's forever with no struggles. You know, when people go to the military, they have this thing called boot camp. Now, if you ask any of them, you might find one or two people who got a couple screws loose that want to get up at 5 a.m. in the pouring raining with a 100-pound backpack, carrying their rifle, repeating phrases on a five-mile hike. You won't find any. Maybe one or two dudes like, woo! <laughs> the rest of them are going to be like, man, read about it, read about it. Who wants to do that? But you know why they train you like that? Because one day you may be in war having to carry a 100-pound backpack with your life in danger and having to walk in conditions that are dangerous. And so they train you so you know what to do in that situation. Suffering, circumstances train us so that we know how to act like the Lord in these situations. He is not going to remove many of them. 
but he's going to use them to say, okay, how are you going to trust me in this? How are you going to honor me with this? I may not take away your depression, but how are you going to honor me while you're depressed? Some of us may struggle with bitterness the rest of our lives. How are you going to honor me, though, when you struggle? Lastly, how does bitterness defile many? This is where we see this prominently in our society. It's called cancel culture. Cancel culture is essentially just taking up other people's offenses. And most of these people, you don't even personally know them. You cancel people. Take away their livelihood, their ability to make money, their ability to be because they said something, sometimes even a long time ago. Now, some people think, oh, you know, cancel culture. I, you know, I get there are times I'm like, man, you went out, you jumped out there. But you know the problem with cancel culture? It's all punishment, no redemption. As a Christian, that's the opposite. It's, if it's punishment, it's for the sake of redemption. Hebrews 12, right, God disciplines those he loves as sons. And it says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but rather it bears the peaceful fruit of righteousness when you've been trained up under it. Cancel culture is about ending you because of something you said or did. Jesus is about redeeming you so that you don't do the same things. I mentioned this last week. A lot of the stories where people are deconstructing, what they call deconstructing Christianity or deconstructing my faith, a lot of them are really deconstructing Jesus. And they deconstruct the morality of Jesus. They separate all these different things. And there are some people that have really gut-wrenching stories. Well, I can see why you're tempted to walk away from Christianity. But a lot of these situations are not genuinely something that's wrong with Christianity. It's wrong with the expectations that you have. Christianity does not resolve every question. God doesn't say because you prayed that your grandmother would not die of cancer and she died that somehow he failed. There are not promises that God made. And then people say, well, yeah, but there's problems with the Bible and it says this and one thing. And then. Let me tell you this. When you can prove that any apparent contradictions that you think are in the Bible, whether they're transcribal errors or they're just if you can prove to me that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you might have my attention. Until then, I don't care if Mark says it happened at the sixth hour and Luke says it was the ninth hour. And that's a contradiction to you. These things were copied by other men. I trust the Bible. Not Look, even in your Bible right now, most of your translations will say this in your Bible. You'll get to Mark 16, right? It'll say... Verses 9 through 21 are not in the original manuscripts, meaning somewhere that, that last, that end story was added. You'll look at John 8, the adulterous woman, and it'll say this story is not found in the majority of the original manuscripts. That means someone added that story. Does that make the Bible not? No. Because if you can prove to me that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we have a problem. Because Paul said if he didn't rise from the dead, then we're the most of all to be pitied. Because the whole foundation of our faith is not that he, is that he rose from the dead, not that it happened at the sixth hour or the ninth hour. 
That's not what matters to me. I don't care if you found some, some archaeological landscape that proves that this city didn't exist. Did he rise from the dead? If he did, then I don't care about all the other stuff. I'm not deconstructing nothing. But what happens is, man, people just they walk away from the faith over these minor things. You don't have, listen, that's a whole different thing. I, I'm, I need to talk to Carl about that before I say something dumb. But we need this, this, I just, we, that's another conversation. I just think this idea of, well, that's a different conversation. Man. We just talk about that. Ways that bitterness defiles many, when you're the person who's bitter, it becomes a worldview for you. Bitterness becomes a worldview. And here's what I mean. You relate to people through the way you've been hurt. So you evaluate other people and your ability to trust them by the way someone else hurt you. And this person has, I've never done, I haven't done it. I don't even, this is our first time talking. Now I'm sensitive, I'm fine with it. I'm sensitive to the fact that people have been hurt and offended and may lack trust. That's fine. There are some people who, when they come to talk with me, it is a big step for them. Not because of who I am, just because of what I am. I'm a pastor, and you've had some church hurt. And I always encourage them and thank them for that. I do not take lightly people sitting down to talk to me and share with me some of their struggles. And some of these struggles are very deep, and they're crying as they share them. And I'm there to try to help them work through it. I do not take that lightly at all. I respect that people struggle with that. But when you start evaluating everyone based on how you've been hurt, and we get away with it by saying stuff like this. When I say get away, I don't mean like in a negative way, but this is how we justify it. Well, I'm, I just don't trust people because I was hurt before and someone said some stuff. About, okay. But everyone needs a clean slate, though. Mm -hmm. This isn't the person that did that. The people in your D group didn't do that. You're just meeting these people. Or you've been around them and that hasn't been proven. And, it's, and you know, so, that, again, bitterness becomes a worldview. I start evaluating relationships with other people and the way I relate to the world based upon how I was hurt. That's a dangerous thing because you're going to get hurt again. And what if someone does something similar to what hurt you before, but in a, for a different, different situation? Someone else might have been trying to hurt you. It might have been malicious that they told all your stuff or whatever. And then someone else might have accidentally tried to text you and texted the whole group. It becomes a worldview. And if someone does something close to it, man, they get the bitterness treatment too. Can't trust you either. You're on the list. Grace is about clean slate. Redemption is about, let's clean that slate. It's a word picture. Redemption is essentially, here's our life. Here's the slate of our life. And there's nothing but dirt on it. And God is just constantly cleaning that thing off. Because of Jesus' blood. I'm just cleaning this joint off with Jesus' blood. Like, let me keep clean slate, clean slate, clean slate. And this is why another way bitterness defiles us when we're bitter is we can't give people a clean slate, so we think God isn't going to give us a clean slate. Mm -hmm. So we start thinking that we're not forgiven, and we start affecting our relationship with God because we can't forgive. We, can't, we don't believe he's forgiven us. We start questioning whether or not God has actually forgiven us. How could God forgive me? I've done this a lot because I can't even forgive this person. Yeah. And now the promises of God and what he's doing become all of a sudden now questionable. Mm -hmm. And now by default, you're deconstructing God's promises that you're forgiven, that you're a son and a daughter to persevere. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people back away 
The problem isn't that God has stopped forgiving. The problem is you've stopped believing in forgiveness. The person that receives the bitterness, the person that is, they become defensive. Listen, if someone's ever humbly said to you, humbly said to you, hey, I just need to ask you for forgiveness. I've been bitter at you for a while. It affects you. You try it. Uh, thank you for telling me that. I, and then you find out why they were bitter, and then you try to apologize for what you're aware of, and, and you hug each other, and then you walk away like, dang. And you start thinking like that. Well, how many other people have been faking and pretending like they really like me, but they're angry at me for something? And you start to question even your own relationships because you're affected by that. You get on the defensive now. And now you start evaluating people by are your, are your relationships genuine or not? Bitterness defiles, as I said earlier, because it, becomes, it can become shouting and slander. Shout and slander at people. Brothers, sisters. You defile others because people agree with your pain. There may not be cancel culture in the more social media sense, but it is in the more individual sense. When I'm counseling, here's what I often will say so that I don't do that. Because often, I don't even know both sides of the story. So someone would be saying something, and I'll be like this, listen, I would be tempted to, if I were you. If, if what you're saying is, it happened the way you're saying it, it's understandable to me that you feel that way. I would be tempted by that, too, if what happened is what it, But I make sure that's clear. But I'm not saying, hey, you're right to be bitter, but I understand, we're human beings, right? I understand the temptation. There are some things, there's some expectations that are valid. You just shouldn't do this. You shouldn't have said this. That's valid. You defile people, though, because people agree with you and your pain and that this shouldn't have happened. And it's like, man, how do you know how the Lord's using that? You can't prove that the Lord isn't using this pain. We act like, oh my, the Lord is, if we believe the scriptures that we are being conformed to the image of his son, in Romans 8, 29, then I want to come alongside and help, but I ain't going to try to tell people, like, nah, I don't know what the Lord intends to do with that pain. And how you might, that might have happened to you, so 12 years from now, you can really help these people who it happened to. This is why I love like the idea of AA and their sponsors, right? How could there be sponsors? The, pe the people that are the best sponsors are the people that had to walk through it, right? Mm -hmm. Most people who are in AA, they don't want somebody that's never been an alcoholic because you don't understand the triggers, the temptation. You don't understand it. So what you do is you have people who sponsor you because I've been there. And when they're talking to you, you listen differently because you know they've experienced the withdrawal from alcohol or this drug. That's why I love William Dallas. Because he was a former alcoholic and he has led an AA meeting at this church for years. And he can relate to people. I can't relate to them. I've been to some of those meetings. And I, let, I can't relate. But he can. He can encourage differently. Your suffering 
is so that you can relate to other people when they suffer. When other people agree with your hurt and then they get, then they take up offenses and now they ain't talking to people. Now they don't like the leader. And lastly, when you're bitter, you compare yourself to the person you're bitter at than to the person who commanded you not to be bitter. You think about what you would have done, I don't do that, I would, and you compare yourself to that person. But the key to humility is to compare myself to the one who died for me, not to the person that I wish would die. We compare ourselves to the other people, just like the, just like the Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector. He came in, looked at the dude, the tax collector, who was beating his chest, and he was like, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like this dude. I do the opposite of him. That's what bitterness does. Man, you're not like him. And nah, you're actually just like that person. Maybe worse. This is a lot. It's a lot. And you may have the response of the apostles in this scene. In Luke 17, here's what happened. Jesus said this. He said to his disciples, offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one whom through they come. Now, a bitter person will be like, see, that's what the Lord's talking about him. The Lord's talking about her. That's not what the passage is saying. He says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So a bitter person would be like, see, that's it, that's it. The Lord spoke to me this morning. I feel good. I'm refreshed. This Lord wasn't speaking to your situation, fam. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he, listen to this, and if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Here's the, resp here's the response of the apostles. Increase our faith. <laughs> Listen, the Lord said, you got to forgive when they come back. And they was like, man, ain't no way I can forgive somebody seven times. They said, Lord, increase our faith. Some of y'all this morning like, man, Lord, increase my faith. I am bitter. And I don't know what to do about it. That's why we're talking about this. Now, when I do a series, me and Mike, we purposely do not try to solve every issue. And every, I build on them. Next week, when we talk about bitterness at God, we're going to start talking about how do we go after it. And then the following week, bitterness in the family. We're going to go after it. I just want to make sure we understand what we're talking about here and how serious this is. Increase our faith. Even the apostles was like, man, are you serious? <laughs> Like, I'm a visual person. I imagine as Jesus was saying this, they look at each other like, man, is he, is he serious? Is anybody else? Real? And it said, what I love is it said, the, it didn't say Peter said. It said the apostles. They was like, Lord, increase our faith. Man, I can't, I don't got that much forgiveness in me. You may feel like that. And I want, I, it doesn't say why they said that, but I wonder if they thought, man, then a person could just keep sinning against me and, and just, I got to forgive them. That, that, that's not my expectation. 
That's not what I want. I don't want to keep forgiving people if they keep hurting me. What if they do it intentionally and there's all these caveats? And he said, you got to forgive them. What if they, but if they keep sinning, then how, if they say, I repent, then how do I know that's even genuine if they keep doing it? He didn't say evaluate if it's genuine. He said forgive them. That's the difference, so we'll come back to that. Let's close in prayer.